Hello all and a very cool welcome to the first episode of Antarctica Unfrozen. Now, some of you might think that with a terrible welcoming pun like the one I just cracked, it's already going to be hard to recover. However, lucky for us, on this episode we're talking to Dr. Daniel Price, a climate researcher, Antarctic Traverse expert, passionate climate campaigner, Edmund Hillary Fellow, He's also the co-founder of Offcut Caps, but mostly, and importantly, just a really nice guy. I thoroughly enjoyed this catch-up with Dan. He's an inspiring dude with drive that really rubs off on you positively. We delved into some pretty incredible yarns, shocking news, and important ideas, starting off with his recent scientific expedition traversing the Ross Ice Shelf, which is a rather large piece of mostly floating ice nearly the size of France, the lesser known threats of climate change and what has kept him going, what has kept him motivated through understandably a very challenging time in our society's relationship with the environment. I could go on about how much goodness this guy has to share but I'll leave it there. I hope you enjoy this first episode of the podcast and I hope it rattles or stimulates some more thoughts or ideas. After all, that's why we podcast. Here's my conversation with University of Canterbury postdoctoral fella, Dr. Dan Price. What on earth were you doing in Antarctica this season? Well, well, um, this past season, um, I was part of the New Zealand Traverse team which is uh, the first time that New Zealand has attempted a big traverse operation in the Antarctic since Hillary in the 50s right. yeah, when they yeah. did the Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Right. Um, traversing in the Antarctic is a massive undertaking. Um, it's come about because there's this big project called the Ross Ice Shelf Project. Yep. Um, the Ross Ice Shelf is an area of Antarctica about the size of France. It's huge, right? Huge. A big chunk of ice. Massive, yeah. It's ridiculous um, to imagine. Yeah, and flat and white, there is nothing going on visually on the surface. However... Under the surface, there are really dangerous areas of crevassing, right. which uh, we have to put a lot of effort in to avoid. Okay. Um, number one objective is to not drive into these crevasses. Drive and down. Yeah. And drive and fall down. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're a convoy of three vehicles. The lead yep. vehicle um, is the navigation vehicle and cool. the sort of crevasse avoidance vehicle. Right. Then we've got two big vehicles behind it pulling on the gear. All that gear, as I was saying, was for the Ross Ice Shelf Project. The Ross Ice Shelf Project is a big New Zealand based science project to try and understand how the Ross Ice Shelf, this big area the size of France, yeah. is going to respond to a warming climate. Right. How it's moving, how it's changing, how it's adapting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, ice shelves can be particularly sensitive to a warming ocean, which is a big concern around Antarctica now. Yes. Um, ice shelves kind of act like a, they have a, a buttressing effect, or you can kind of imagine it as a, a cork in a bottle right. holding back the ice which is on the land behind them okay. which is called ice sheets so the Ross ice shelf isn't actually fastened or connected to mainland Antarctica the, the sort of land mass or some of it is obviously at the, at the very back of it but the majority of it is actually out over ocean exactly yeah okay. so it's, it's floating over the ocean um, from anything it's, it's about a kilometre thick by the coast what? but it is technically connected to the land it's, it's, it's the ice that's come down from the land the right. ice sheet which is up on, on, on the grounded 
area of Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then under gravity, that ice, because it's such a colossal mass, yeah. moves down towards the coast. Right. When it hits the ocean, it starts to float. And that's okay. when it becomes an ice shelf. Wow. Um, and the, the sort of effect it has is to slow down the ice behind it. So the worry is, which has happened in um, ice shelves on the peninsula, where it's warmer, that they will start to retreat, which will reduce that buttressing effect or let the cork out of the bottle if right. you like and okay. then ice which is on the land which is what we'll we're worried about for sea funnel level, down funnel down because or accelerate obviously i mean obviously this ice shelf is huge the the ross ice shelf but is there more ice behind it that is greater is it literally like you're saying the cork of the bottle so once that goes more ice from the mainland that wouldn't necessarily travel down those areas will kind of start to fall down and fall out just because of gravity exactly so it all that ice is making its way towards the coast already but if the ice shelf were to be lost it would move faster right which is what the global scientific community is trying to establish because the, the the real question for society and the future is how fast is sea level going to rise because yeah. there's so much uncertainty that's been one of the main massive. takeaways of this whole thing is that you know when i was when i started this podcast and i obviously have limited knowledge on the whole scientific field especially in antarctica obviously i was like oh yeah science you do science that's great but it's actually the, the reason we're doing science in antarctica is to try and um, reduce the uncertainty, reduce all of these things that we don't know about because then we can start to make policy, right? Then we can start to make create some policy and laws around it to try and start protecting exactly. it because it makes sense to our civilization, our own well-being. Totally. Like to, to create effective policy, it has to be based on sound science. Yeah. And it's exactly about constraining those numbers. 50 centimeters of sea level rise over the next 80 years is mm. pretty different to four meters yeah. so for low-lying countries around the world that's an absolute game changer so and that's the thing that's the range though right you know and absolutely and that's what we're trying to figure out going back to uh what you guys were up to then so what what were you guys trying to do there they obviously do something that involves this research yeah yeah exactly so i was involved on the logistical side um and yes we were making our way across the ice shelf that's the point of the traverse because they've been trying to get in there to this particular area they want to get to on the Ross ice shelf to drill through the ice shelf, yeah. um, which at that location is about 500 to 600 meters thick. Okay. Then there's an ocean cavity underneath, and then there's the seabed. And the seabed um, basically holds clues um, or pieces to the puzzle about how the ice, sheet is ice shelf has responded in the past okay. to warming. Right. Um, in the water column, uh, there's these microorganisms that, that live in the water column. The different species are there when the ice, sheet, uh, the ice shelf covered the ocean right. and when it didn't. Right. Um, and as they die, their so are they, are they fossils? Essentially, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. It's like a fossilized record of the life that was in the ocean and the type of life that was in the ocean gives you an idea of what the ice was doing. Right. Um, that can be um, coupled with temperature information. So we can say, okay, when these species were here, uh, this is what the ice was doing and this is how warm it was, which basically is looking to the past to provide insights on the future. Yeah, well, that's one of the things we've also found out in this podcast is that the ice, you know, it's, it's trying to look at things, trying to understand things in a human time frame is impossible when it comes to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously one of the main challenges. But the reality is it's it's warmed, it's cooled, it's warmed, it's cooled, it's gone through these huge cycles over millions and uh, billions of years, Absolutely. whatever, you know. And so now we're trying to figure out mm -hmm. a, a scale of, 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 you know, rates of change uh, in such small time frames mm -hmm. relative to us. Mm -hmm. um, it just sounds like a quite a monumental challenge hey? absolutely yeah and it's totally right like that the human time frame is just completely incompatible with yeah. geological time for, for most people yeah um and it's very difficult to get them to understand um the rate of change that's happening now like the, i mean the difference between now and the last glacial maximum is four to five degrees right. we're looking and that has sort of that temperature change has happened over 20 25,000 years we're now looking at that sort of temperature change by the end of the century. That's right, over, over 100, 200 yeah, years. which is just 
doesn't work for the global biological system yeah. to yeah. adapt to. So it's pretty scary. They're pretty scary numbers. Right. Okay. So where? Uh, so they were going down to drill into this. Where was it? Um, so it's a far side of the Ross Ice Shelf. So right. the, the Ross Ice Shelf comes out from the Antarctic continent right up to Scott Base, where yeah. New Zealand's um, presence in the Antarctic is absolutely is, is based. Um, and it's about a twelve hundred kilometer traverse across the entirety of the Ross Ice Shelf. Right. So last year we went and proved a route to get there. Okay. That's where all the crevasse management and things came in. There's a serious recce trip. Yeah, right. big recce trip. Um, and there were sort of six months of pre-planning for that, looking at satellite imagery to identify where is safe and where isn't. Um, on the lead vehicle, we also have a radar out the front looking down, which wow. gives us a warning in real time of something that's coming up. How far does that extend in front of you? About eight meters, eight on, meters. A, on a boom. Yeah. And, and so what's that thing doing? It's sending out... Yeah, it's firing down um, essentially light energy um, as a radar pulse, and that right. comes back to us. Um, and we have a screen, the driver's in one seat, and there's a guy monitoring a screen on the other seat. Um, you can kind of think of it... Uh, like the principle of a fish finder on a boat. Right. It's like firing energy down. It's yeah. not sound like on a boat. It's light. Um, and it comes back and it prints, presents it on the screen and you learn to interpret what you're seeing. Like a, a, a bit like a fish finder? Yeah, exactly. A bit right. like a fish finder. Exactly. And um, yeah, you, you can see crevasses coming up to you. Um, you know, it's pretty incredible technology and we can work out how wide they are, etc. without even having to to investigate yeah, yeah, yeah. them. Um, but, and so, but what's the gap between, because this thing's only, what, eight, eight metres ahead eight of you? If it sees one, then what yeah. happens? We got a bit of time, so we're travelling, if we're in dangerous areas, which we've identified with the satellite imagery, right. we're travelling slowly. High-risk areas. Yeah, yeah. high-risk areas, okay. we slow it right now. Gosh, um, you guys are smart. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're still here we're still here so it did something right, right exactly um so yeah we've probably got like four to five seconds to respond which is actually quite a long time if you count it out so. right yeah 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 yep. as long as you haven't fallen asleep everything's okay. all good and so then okay you get this alert it pops off you're like crevasse ahead mm -hmm. then what happens then we attempt to basically profile and work out whether we can drive over it or not right um so it's all about how wide it is uh um in proportion to how thick the snow bridge is on it so, so at this point, you have to get out of the car, um, out of the car, the piston bully, the right? Piston bully, it's yeah, kind of like exactly. a ski field groomer. Exactly. Boom. Perfect. Yeah. Oh. So yes, it, we, we use the radar to profile, work things out. And then if it is a situation where we need to get out, we will get out. We've got a whole belay rope system on the front and we yeah. can investigate it um, with probes and shovels and open Whoa. it up if we need to. But most of the time we can work it out um, from the radar itself and work out to sort of whether we can cross or not. Right. Yeah. And so quite a simple question that I think is important is why do these massive cracks in the ice form, crevasses? I mean, because I mean, on the Ross Ice Shelf, we think of crevasses here and, you know, it could be between 10 to 100 metres deep. But I imagine with these crevasses, they could be, you know, ridiculously yeah, deep. they can be ridiculously scary, deep. Scary, scary deep. Yeah, um, massive, like... Unretrievably deep. Yeah, I mean, you're in big... It's just about avoidance completely. You know, right. uh, taking a, a person or a vehicle into a crevasse is a major, major incident mm -hmm. and survival is unlikely, yeah. um, especially if it's just a person on foot. Yeah. Um, they're, yeah, they're big chasms um, and if you fall in, you essentially get wedged in there. It's mm. a massive deal. Um, mm. Not something we even really wanna, it, yeah. yeah, it's not It's not a good place to be. No. So um, yeah, it's all about avoidance. Yeah. Um, and that's why we go to such an effort with the satellite imagery prior to even departing yeah because um, how much how so much planning did this trip that you've just been on how much planning did that take oh it's huge and, and there's an amazing team behind it all it's yeah. not just about the crevasse yeah. safety it's about the logistics it's, it's, it's a big operation yeah. yeah um just to keep you know four six people alive crossing the ice shelf for six weeks is you know so six weeks six weeks travel yeah wow. exactly so so back to the sort of overall scheme of it it's a 1200 kilometer traverse from scott base um, to the to the to next the, point to the drilling site right, to the drilling site yeah um, and so yeah last the year before last we went out there proved the route and this 
year now, we've gone out there and a seismic team came with us. Um, and those guys did an amazing job of, they basically need to work out because if you imagine it, you're just there and it's flat and white, but you're floating on an ocean and mm. the interesting bits below that ocean in the yeah. sediment, a, a kilometer below you. Um, and they're using these seismics. They set off explosives along a 50 kilometer line and they take that data and they can work out and make sure that there is sediment underneath there. Because if we went through all this effort and just yeah. drilled blind into yeah. the ice, we might hit solid rock, which would give us no information whatsoever. So you're looking for that gap level. of ocean kind of underneath and yeah. then seafloor. And then seafloor, but key is that there's sediment there. That okay. sediment's built up over time that you can then reconstruct that sort of geological record, which That's gives right. you information on the climate and the glaciers. Yeah, so you're looking at you know the rock, the different types of rock, the different types of um, fossilized organisms and all of these things that will tell you. Yeah. God, it blows me away sometimes. Eh? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible what we can learn from the yeah. geological record. Um, and so that was the, <clears throat> the program last year. And then next year, this coming season, is the plan to take the actual drilling wow. team out there so it's been you know by the end of it it's a three-year expedition in a way a three-year program uh yes they're, they're with multiple expeditions rather i should exactly. say exactly yeah. yeah it's a it's a big undertaking wow. um so yeah next year the drilling team will go out the huge logistical challenge of actually drilling through the ice which right. is with a hot water drill yeah um and then all this, a lot of science gear goes into the borehole and then the sediment cores go down and take shallow sediment cores to so is that going to be a bigger party projected. next time? Yes. Right. Yeah. And there'll be a field camp set up out there for sort of two months. A lot of the gear is already staged out there on berms. Right. Um, ready to go for next year. And so you guys are confident that, because obviously this ice shelf is moving all the time. Exactly. You guys are confident that this route you know, is, yeah. is pretty safe. Totally. And yeah. then going back to your previous question of where do these crevasses come from, um, the sort of most dangerous area you can get into is what's called a shear zone, where yeah. you've got one area of ice. Just imagine these colossal, you know, Imagine. Yeah. Try. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's quite incredible because on the surface, there's almost no indication that anything's yeah. happening. So it's with these technologies that we can work it out. But um, essentially, these shear zones, are one area of ice is uh, slower than the area of ice moving next to it. And when they move past each other, they essentially sort yeah. of shred each other. You just reeks of a stitch up, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Crikey. Massive. So they become these colossal, messy areas that then get this covering of snowfall on the top which hides yeah, the hazard yeah, yeah. Um, but looks yeah, beautiful but looks beautiful but it's uh, yeah, a bit sinister below the surface yeah 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 oh my gosh yeah so I, I don't know one of the things I love about this story is that you know when you think about this historic era and then Hillary's era etc when they did all these thing, first things you know, for me, this is modern adventure in Antarctica still, you mm -hmm. know. A lot of people would always be like, oh, you know, it's well, around the globe. It's like all of these incredible adventures, they've been done in a way, you know. There's mm -hmm. how many more things can we do and be first at? But mm -hmm. you, this was somewhat of a first, right? Um, yes, it was the first time anyone's driven from Scott Base to this particular location. Yeah. And we had to cross areas that had never been traversed by vehicles before. Um, but, exactly. uh, it, you know, what those guys did back in the day is just doesn't, it's, it's hard a, to it shouldn't even be in the same conversation as what we're doing, you know? Like, well, we, they are we cross, different, yeah. yeah. I mean, we cross Amundsen's track and Scott's track to the pole, and, yeah, you know, those guys were just out in the elements, just yeah. putting up tents every night, moving under there with Scott under his own power. Like, it's unbelievable. We're in vehicles driving along. They've got heating. Yeah, it's, you know, I know. We're not on, you know, <laughs> you can't, yeah, not even the same conversation. But what is also amazing is that we have these technologies to assess the hazards. That's Those right. guys had nothing. It's a, it's Even a Hillary in the 50s, yeah. they had nothing. They mm. were just, maybe ignorance is bliss. Maybe yeah. it makes it easier to deal with. But um, I guess you you know more information, but that information could be slightly stressful, I suppose. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. And, you know, it is incredibly hazardous. And it's amazing to me that they didn't, 
lose more men down yeah. crevasses. I mean, Scott's team lost a man, um, but it's yeah, there are certain areas which I wouldn't even contemplate walking into, mm. and they would have had very little idea of the hazard yeah. they were walking over. And so, what did the what did the typical day kind of look like then? Six weeks. I don't know how many days is that. Um, yeah, so six weeks. Well, yeah, that forty plus days. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's a it's a sort of two weeks out there, two weeks. Because it was twenty four hour daylight, right? Exactly. Just spinning above your head, yeah. The sun, which some people struggle to deal with. Luckily, I don't really have any issues with it. Yeah. Um, but a typical day is uh, get up sort of six o'clock. Yep. Breakfast. Um, we've got sort of a small living quarters that we eat in in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it's all pretty it's confined. Essential. Yeah, it is yeah. essential, and it's it's uh, way better than having to put up tents every night. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. These, like I say, vehicles with heaters, which is yeah. an absolute game changer. Um, and we, yeah, breakfast, jump in the vehicles, get moving. We maintain pretty solid comms with Scott Base, let them know what's going on, where yep. we are, um, yep. and then we'll typically drive ninety to hundred kilometers a day. Because um, we're pulling such a huge load behind us, we have to travel quite slowly in these big tracked pistol yeah. bullies. Yeah. Um, what is slowly? How, what does that mean? Ten to eleven k's an hour. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, so pretty damn slow. Not moving quickly at all. A very yeah. light jog. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It could actually, you know, run faster outside than the vehicles <laughs> on the way south. So, um, <laughs> it's yeah. The you get used to it. Um, it it does take a toll mentally because yeah. I mean you're looking out the window for yeah. certain sections of it we have the transantarctics out on the side which are beautiful to look at but for most of it there's nothing it's totally flat and white just flat and white hey? um, just a white abyss absolutely and you obviously have to look at these screens quite a lot right so yep. it's like screen square eyes and then look up it's white abyss like yep. to me that sounds horrible <laughs> yeah um, luckily we don't have to monitor um, the route the entire way yeah. uh, so we use a section of the Americans traverse to the South Pole oh nice um, which is a well proven route and we don't have to monitor that screen 24-7 for the six weeks perfect um, there are a couple of days where we have to be seriously into it um, mm. so that is definitely a, a bit of a lifesaver on mm. the mental front yeah um, absolutely but yeah day to day is just yep yeah, it's your normal sort of day routine, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. And in between, you're just driving. Well, that's the thing, right? You need those bits of normality in your life yeah. to stay sane. Like, it's everyone always goes, oh, what, what's it like down there? Or like, you know, what, what's so different? It's like, well, the, the environment is just so ridiculous that mm. you need aspects of your normal life yeah, back in it just to try and stay sane, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. So maintaining a good routine is, is really important to keep moving and make sure you're chugging away at those Ks every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Did you have like a, a daily kind of like rough estimate of how many Ks you wanted to get through? Yeah, kind of. We come up with a plan every morning. We have a sort of meeting every morning at breakfast and work out what we're going to do. And when there are crevasse hazards, that make sure everyone's on the same page and work out and make sure everyone's safe. Because mm. um, it's it's pretty interesting in the crevassed areas. You, ca you can't just, you know, get out and go for a walk. You have to stay yeah. within the bounds yeah. of what we've said is safe. So if we're going to stop for lunch or to refuel or for dinner or in the evening, that lead vehicle will sort of prove a circle around the rest of the vehicles That's before right. they even get out. Right. Um, and you can't, you know, venture off for a walk because you could disappear into a hole. Exactly. So. It's kind of like the roads around Scott Base, right? The, yeah. the general rule of thumb is five meters each side of the flag. Exactly. Stay within the further. marked routes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we do apply the same principle when we head into the deep field. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's hard to fathom. Just again, just think of the size. You know, a, an ice sheet, a piece of ice, you know, as nearly the size of France. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you even, how can you even comprehend that? Yeah, it's extensive. It's extensive. It's extensive. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, what what has motivated you? Because you, um, you know, you're a bit of a legend. I've been lucky enough to know you for a bit longer than just this interview. <laughs> um, and you, when was it? 2015, before the Paris Agreement, you did quite a, another epic expedition yeah adventure. so my, my background's in science climate science and glaciology um and i did that uh 
through my undergrad and then a, a PhD and ahead of the COP21 agreement was just getting pretty frustrated with the lack of like many people yeah um, uh, sort of political uh, momentum on the climate lack of change. seriousness exactly suppose, yeah. the urgency is just yeah. not there yeah um, so ahead of COP21 started a project called Pole to Paris um, where I cycled from New Zealand to Paris and my uh, Norwegian colleague Ellen Knudsen ran from Tromso in the Arctic to Paris Whoa. so it's like these two journeys from Epic the poles. Yeah. yeah exactly and Unreal. it was kind of bringing the urgency from the poles which are kind of these areas um, sort of the canaries in the coal mine of climate change where change is going to happen rapidly yeah. already is happening yeah. rapidly in yeah. the Arctic um, to this landmark potential agreement in Paris where the world would start to move start, on action exactly. on climate change um, and start so to that was, change that was the agenda and just to raise awareness ahead of it um, and gain media attention on the way yeah. and it was it was pretty successful yeah but I mean that also sounds like a pretty rad time you yeah. get to ride through all these incredible countries absolutely um, yeah. yeah and yeah 99 how many countries did you like ride through to do that uh, I think it was about 22 in the end how yeah. long did that take eight months Whoa. Yeah. Um, and we'd sort of, yeah, pick up on local climate stories on the way. Um, the UN came on board as a partner and supported us. Oh, man. So when I was in Bangladesh, we spent four weeks uh, making a film about sea level rise in wow. Bangladesh, which oh, is yeah. one of the, you know, it's it's a huge deal. So it's, it's amazing going from Antarctica, which is going to be the source of this great That's change right. to right. the place where the impact is going to be greatest. And in Bangladesh, 30 million people live within a meter of Off sea level. Sea. Yeah. Um, and these colossal movements of people are kind of the thing that concern me the most about climate change mm. um, in these sort of key areas around the world, the Middle East, the Indian subcontinent, yeah. where people in certain areas generally don't like each other. And yeah. if they're going to have to start moving into each other's territory, we well, generally end up fighting. Exactly. So that's, that's the, the big concern. I mean, that's the thing that other people don't understand about climate change is that, yes, it's the sea level rising and then all of these other things like change in weather events, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. that affect how we basic things grow our food mm -hmm. um, do all these things that we need to survive mm -hmm. but then there's all of these little other externalities that come exactly. with it like conflict yeah, you know exactly that's one clear one that i don't think has been talked enough about especially no. in these low-lying areas mm -hmm. where um you know in these less developed countries where there's you know, masses and masses of people mm -hmm. around the coastline because they all rely on the coastline mm -hmm. obviously they all have to move yeah mm -hmm. i mean you get those extreme religious beliefs coming into play and exactly and just massive sort of social and political instability yeah and i feel like climate change in these areas that are already socially or politically unstable it's just kind of this well, slowly creeping up ticking over factor that could push areas that are already at risk over the edge um and who even knows how that's going to play out um i think the crisis in Syria is a really good example of how that can spill over into politics. You know, I'm, mm. I'm not saying climate change drove the, the crisis in Syria, but a drought did. And yeah. droughts are going to become more That's common right. in the Middle East. Um, and heat there is just going to become insane. And people are going to start moving. Mm. Resources are going to become incredibly difficult to come by. And that movement of people into Europe argued for me i'm a, a british citizen well they already they a, already not into it no and <laughs> I, I mean it played it played a part um the way it's presented in the media etc in i would say brexit and the way that our political system is shaped political these events shifts can happen quickly clear evidence yeah. of, of all of those things yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah immigration from africa driven by many things uh, and immigration from the middle east was only is only going to be made worse by climate change and 
we need to start thinking about these things now yeah. and putting in systems in place to deal with it because people are going to move. Because these are these desert, more desert-like areas, right? Yeah. And so with climate change, it is, there's a clear correlation between or, or a clear understanding that there will be an increase in these desert areas around the globe. So general idea is that areas that are already dry are potentially going to become drier yeah. and areas that are wet are going to become wetter. And it's all about the extremes yeah. and, um, how, um, and the frequency of the extremes. Um, and the Middle East you know, already is a hotspot for trouble. And just this additional stress induced mm. by climate change um, is just, I mean, just not going to make yeah, things better. Tick things, yeah, take things really over the edge. Yeah. It's just, again, the, the whole thing about climate change as well is that it's just so much territory that we just don't know. But mm-hmm. that, that I feel, you know, after all this learning now, I feel like one of the biggest words that comes away when I think of climate crisis, global heating, is just uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's know? amazing that it's been argued for years, you know, the people on the denialist side, that uncertainty is a reason to not take action. But it's the complete opposite. It's it's the, That's the absolute reason to take action. Exactly. When when especially when you're gambling with the entire sort of global life support system, um, uncertainty should be an absolute reason to take action as quickly as possible. Yeah. And not to just kick the can down the road well i know I, that's just that's illogical isn't it it is completely but it, it, uh, it was a very effective movement by the sort of denialist community that we don't really know what's going on so let's not act and yeah, kind yeah. of dictated the politics of it for years and so i suppose that's why you know the the solution the unfortunate solution in a way or the unreasonable solution is having to smash out the science now as much as ever we can so that we can present these numbers we can come up with some more certainty to create action totally and the science is important to do and I am passionate about it but I'm also a big advocate of we need solutions as well mm. um, you know presenting the science so oh, far has exactly. not instigated yeah. the movement that's required we no, need totally we need non-scientists everybody needs to get involved exactly and find out a way to communicate this effectively so the political system starts to wake up exactly and I guess you know it comes into this idea of if there's more communication of things and there's more um, spreading of ideas about this whole issue then hopefully you just have more sparks of inspiration from more individuals who come up with these different ideas and all you know you see it around the world with people trying to solve issues mm-hmm. but there just needs to be more of that happening doesn't there because Absolutely. it's great if we have the science and it's great if we're trying to communicate it and it's great that you know everyone's talking about it but if there's no sort of um, um, yeah, solutions, practical mm-hmm. solutions to how we can make changes to one, our energy system, mm-hmm. um, to the way we just go about our life and, and yeah, realising as well that this whole world of ours, you know, I just feel like one of the things that we always forget that we are a part of the system, this, this natural system that mm-hmm. the earth regulates in and does, you know. And I think that's one of the key learnings that we should talk about more too is the fact that we are a part of a biological system and we're not this you know invincible uh, species that comes away from it yeah that sits on top of it yeah, yeah. we're <clears throat> absolutely not we're fully connected to the global the global system and yeah. it's, it's it's starting to bite back because yeah. we've absolutely neglected it for so oh, long it's it's one of the things that um i i want to yeah really hope drive home with with some of these episodes is that we are connected to everything everything's connected you know and uh the, the more we think about that the more it's makes it so much easier to change ourselves too totally and um, everyone's in this boat together yeah and, I know. And Everyone the thinking whole global, of themselves. It's going to affect the whole global community, and that's why I'm super passionate about trying to get all sectors of society involved because yeah. they're all going to be affected. 
so we all need to be on board with, with a solution. Where did this kind of come from? Where can you kind of trace back this, you know, what motivates you to go to Antarctica and spend, um, you know, almost half the year sometimes down there or dedicating your life to this kind of research? You know, what, um, what is it that drives you in a way if you, can, if you can somehow figure that out? You must have an idea by now. Yeah, it, I mean, it is embedded in the climate crisis and yeah. the urgency that, you know, 10 years of study and investigation has, has given me. Mm. Um, I'd say that's absolutely the foundation of it is the mm. urgency of the situation and just having a future that is viable for mm. society. Exactly. I yeah. I, it, it really is that serious of an issue. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where it comes from. And on the side of that, I guess, just the adventure side of it is yeah, is pretty interesting too. Exactly. So, um, why? Well, it's all one great adventure, right? Mm -hmm. Uncertainty of what's going to happen, the uncertainty of your expeditions while you're down there, all of these things that we're kind of hooked to in a way that's just that natural exploration part of, of lots of humans and how we sort of desire that thing. Yep. Guess you can look at it like that. <laughs> yeah. No, right? Oh, well, it's obviously something that, um, that you know, it does connect with you a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's what motivates you, you know? Yep. And I can see the sort of fire that lights up in your chest when we, when we get talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's really wicked. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess just interest and, and love in the natural world as well. I yeah. grew up sailing with dad from a young age and had a lot to do with the ocean and did search and rescue at sea for a long time. And then that took me into my oceanography degree. Mm. And that's when I started to really learn about the climate system. And yeah. it, it was actually the sort of paleo climate, the ancient climate, and what we do learn from these geological records that really woke me up and got me understanding that mm. the rate of change that we're experiencing now um, is unprecedented yeah. um, and the fact that we've established this our global society during this period of relative climate um, stability yeah um, we've been so blessed shocker. exactly right we've yeah. been so blessed with this stroke of luck in a way isn't yeah. it that we got this perfect little climate for ourselves exactly. to, to develop and boom as a, as a species exactly but now it's like yeah it's again it's being able to just take a check and be mm -hmm. like all right let's hold on let's just see where we are mm -hmm see what's going on in the world um you know this is our one planet like let's try and let's try and keep it to this one planet for now we've got no other options yeah totally that's fantastic man and i guess i love it that you said it all started off in a way with getting nature from from an early age mm -hmm. that's I, for me that's huge you know if you can get into nature and mm -hmm. get young people into nature early and connecting with it because at the end of the day that's what it's all about in a mm -hmm. way right connection back yeah. with nature mm -hmm. caring for it that's yeah. that's what inspires you to care for it absolutely and you know if, if, we, if there's more of that going on then the better and New Zealand one is a great place to do that luckily you know which is awesome but it's about that for the whole world right the mm -hmm. globe getting out into nature a bit more often Definitely. and um, you know that's also why uh quick name drop here for the for the Sir Peter Black Trust but that's what they do you know mm -hmm. they're getting young people into into the environment I think that's that's why I've been so um, motivated and inspired to pursue this project as well with them is because they that's the work they do and mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic and I think it's incredibly important if we do actually so want to mm -hmm. you know because it's like that's the other thing about this issue right is that it's a longish term scale but a, a crisis right now mm -hmm. you know it's like Yes, we're the next generation. We're the ones who need to make the change, sure. But it's like also the next generation and the next generation Absolutely. and the next generation and yeah. for the rest of forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, everyone has to start connecting with nature more mm -hmm. if they want to understand how this whole thing works. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely right. That connection is key and that inspires you to understand it. Um, yeah. And from a young age, it's absolutely vital. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know, I guess it's, you know, you have so many, um, you know, it's the thing with life is that, for me, I live for a bit of connection. That's what I dig. That's what mm. I love because it brings you this cocktail of, of awesome emotions that make mm. you feel super happy and content mm. with life and happy with your journey. 
And, um, you know, if more people can experience that, then in a way it's like you get to, it's a win-win. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of those win-win situations. Mm-hmm. Not only are they sort of understanding and trying to sort of care for the environment, understand what's going on, but they also are feeling good mm-hmm. and having a good life, living a good life, you know? Boom shakalaka. Nailed it, man. <laughs> Perfect. It's good. I think we've, we've dug out something pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and listening in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and do check out some of the others. As always, it'd be great to hear from you. So leave a review or subscribe or get in touch anyway. More info about the episode can be found in the show notes, so feel free to explore. Thanks again, and here's to Antarctica.